Open up to Genesis chapter 3. Last week, uh, at the end of the service, I, I introduced a wonderful song that was called Amazing Grace and then proceeded to play and sing a completely different song. It was not one of my finer moments. But I've decided, I think the term amazing grace is wonderful, but I think it's time for an update. You know how sometimes we update songs? I think it's good. I think we need to update that. I want to change it to agonizing grace. I think this will really catch on. Agonizing grace, how sweet. Don't you think that would just everybody clap along and hum? This would be wonderful. It doesn't seem to fit, does it? Because when we think of grace or mercy, we think of something wonderful. We think of wonderful blessings, good things coming to us, or being saved from something bad, as well we should. And so sometimes, because of this idea of grace and blessings, when we come to church, or when we go to maybe a bookstore to get a book about our life, how to live, we're looking for something good. How do we get from where we are to this step further in our life that's a little bit better? And then from there to another step that's a little bit better. And sometimes in church, there's a pressure of how do we help people to just be a little bit better? I want you to be a better Christian. I want you to be a better uh, person. I want you to be a better worker, a better parent, a better child, a better student. We want to help each other to be better, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is we can miss that there's something bigger going on. This week on Twitter, in case you don't follow Twitter, there's a man by the name of Preflo Dollar. And he tweeted this, Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity. Wow. That Now, this was promptly and quickly deleted, I'm sure, as people went, are you nuts? Now, here's the thing. I mean, this is his ministry. This is what he does. If you follow Jesus, he's going to make your life happy, and he's going to give you financial prosperity. Now, I know God can do that. I believe in a God that can make someone wealthy, just like he did to Abraham. I also believe in a God that can make somebody poor and keep him poor, kind of like, oh, I don't know, Jesus Christ. So to say that God's will for everyone is to be happy, that his grace is just going to be this wonderful, warm fuzzy that brings showers of financial prosperity or feelings of happiness is kind of missing the point. And so as we look at Genesis 1 through 3, we see this idea over and over again of God's blessing, God's grace poured out in creation. We started in Genesis 1 with this idea. We just looked at the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we said right there, we start with in the beginning, God. It really is all about God. This book is not a how-to manual on how to live your life. It is a book about who God is that created us and how we have fallen away from him and how he has restored us. That's what this book is about. Are there blessings and happiness along the way? Absolutely. Is that the whole point of it? No. Then we looked at the rest of chapter 1 as as it went through all the six days of creation and on the seventh day God rested and there's this pinnacle in creation of God creating humanity to have this particular special relationship with him. We are created different than everything else. We are not like the animals. We are not like the insects. We are not like the plants. 
We are created to relate to God in a way that nothing else can. Everything declares his glory. We get to do it on purpose. We get to make a decision, I will glorify God in how I act and how I work and how I live. We are created in his image. Then we looked at Genesis 2 in this Garden of Eden, this beautiful place that God created for us and put Adam and Eve right there in this beautiful garden with all these trees that supplied all they would ever possibly need and where they could do the very thing they were created for. Day in, day out, with absolute joy, no frustration whatsoever. And then last week, we started on Genesis chapter 3. And the idea of dethroning God. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we see Adam and Eve making a decision. God said not to do something. I'm going to do it. And we said this isn't about the fruit. We look at this all the time and say, well, the fruit, God said don't eat it, so you shouldn't eat it. The fruit's bad. Stay away from the fruit. But the emphasis in Scripture is not so much on the fruit. It is on God. It is on Adam and Eve saying, I know better than the God who created me. I get to decide right and wrong. That was the depth of their sin, was a complete and utter rebellion and betrayal against God. The fruit was just the expression of it, taking it and eating it when God said not to. It was a dethroning, a rebellion against God. And so now we come to verses 8 through 24. And we're going to see this morning the horrible consequences, the fallout, if you will, of what happened because of this sin of Adam and Eve. So let's look at these verses. And we're going to start in verses 8 through 13 with something I'm calling the blame game. And it's a very interesting passage of what happens immediately after the sin. Let's look at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Let's just stop there. Verse 8 I believe, is an extremely important verse in all of Genesis. Because it is a glimpse, I believe, even in this awful situation, it is a glimpse of the kind of relationship God created us to have with him. The language that is being used here is very different from the language, let's say later on we'll look at the Tower of Babel, and it says, and the Lord came down to see what they were doing. It was this idea of coming and judgment. The same thing happens with Sodom and Gomorrah. This is very different. This is of a king out in his garden in the cool of the day, just taking a walk. And the implication is, God did this all the time in the garden. Now, we don't know the time between when Adam and Eve were first created and when they fell into sin. We have no idea. But I love this picture of God just strolling through the garden. And again, this is the place that God created us and Adam and Eve to live in this garden that he would just hang out in. Could you imagine going about your day, doing what you were created to do in absolute joy and blessing and having everything you need, and God's just walking around going, hey, how are you doing today? Oh, God, man, so good to see you. I love you so much. Wonderful. Let me show you what I'm doing. This is so great. I'm doing this for your glory. Oh, that's awesome. I love what you're doing. That's great. Could you imagine that being a part of our day-to-day existence? That would just blow me away. So we see just this glimpse And I think because of that, what happens next is amazing. Adam is 
ashamed, and he hides. Our culture has developed a picture of God, and maybe you've been brought up this way, I don't know. A God that is vindictive and is out to get us. Why is Adam ashamed in this passage? Is it because God is vindictive and out to get him? No. It's because Adam has done something wrong. God doesn't cause Adam's shame. Adam has caused his shame. God doesn't force Adam to hide. Adam knows he's done something wrong. He has to hide. The consequences of the sin are not because of God. They're because of Adam. Adam did this to himself. So now he's afraid and ashamed. And this God who is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, wanting to hang out with these people that he's created, this relationship has been severed because Adam knows something is wrong. And so he's hiding and he's afraid. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people think if people were just left to themselves, they would naturally be good. They would naturally restore a right relationship with God. Here is Adam left to himself. And what is he doing in his relationship with God? He's running away. He's hiding. That's the picture we get in Scripture of if we were left to ourselves, what would happen between us and God? We would run away. The other thing that's interesting here is that we have a God who seeks. God comes looking for Adam, even though Adam has betrayed him. And that is a theme that will come up again and again in Genesis and all the rest of the Old Testament, the New Testament, all throughout Scripture. We have a God that even when we are left in our sin, he seeks us, he finds us, he saves us, he restores us. So now we go into this blame shifting Look at verses 11 through 13. And he said, this is God speaking, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? Now think about this for a second. Do you remember the refrain that was repeated in Genesis chapter 1 in the six days of creation? How did everything come into being? And God spoke or said. So God speaks. He speaks, things happen. Reality is created. Things are ordered according to his perfect plan. And now Adam is saying, I've heard something else. And God's saying, you didn't get that from me. You have learned something. You have latched onto something. You have held onto something. And you did not get that from me. Who told you this? Do you see what happens when we walk away from the word of God and we start making things up on our own because they sound good, they feel good, or our culture, whatever it is, says it's good. And God's saying, where did you get that from? You didn't get that from me. Then in verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Do you see the blaming? Isn't it interesting that Adam blames Eve? And if you look at the words, Adam's not just blaming Eve. Who else is he blaming? God. The woman you put here. Oh, yeah, God, I really messed up. But really, I mean, if you look at the situation, it's not my fault. It's really her fault, and you kind of put her here, so you bear some responsibility. I mean, really, God, I did it, but I have a good reason. It's not my fault. Eve does the same thing. Well, wait a minute. Yes, I ate, but it was the serpent's fault. He gave it to me. It's not my fault. Look at verse 5. 
chapter 3, verse 5. This is the temptation. This is what the serpent says to them. For God knows that when you eat from it, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open and you will be like who? God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we looked at this as the idea of not just being aware of good and evil, but knowing good and evil in the sense of determining or judging what is good and what is evil. This is the right to declare something good and declare something evil. This was a right that Adam and Eve were never to have. It was God's right to say what was good and evil, not ours. We were to trust him for that. Now think about this for a second. Here's Adam and Eve and Eve faced with a choice, a choice that they are able to freely make, a choice to eat or not eat from this fruit that God said not to, a choice freely to either obey God or not obey God. And in that choice, they want to be like God. They look at the choice and say, I am free. I am like God. I can make this choice for myself. And now they're faced with the consequences. Are they looking very much like God in the consequences? You see, in our choices and in our freedom, we want to be like God. We want to say, I can do this if I want to. But when faced with the consequences, we want to be a victim. We want to be able to say, it's not my fault. Do you see how quickly they switched? From being in the place of God and saying, I think this is good. Eve says in verse, uh, where is it? Verse 6, the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom. She made a judgment. She said, I will take the place of God and make a judgment. But now when faced with the consequences, she wants nothing, nothing to do with the place of God. We still do that today in our own lives, don't we? We want to say, well, I've got the freedom to do whatever I want with my own body, with my own decisions, with my neighbor, with my family, with my friends, with my children. I have the right to do whatever I want. Me, 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 my rights. I can do what I want. And then consequences come. It's not my fault. Why is that? Because that's the deception of sin. It puts us in the place of making choices that we are responsible for. And as soon as we're faced with the consequences of it, it blinds us to no longer take responsibility. Because if we took responsibility, there would be an opportunity for repentance, confession, and forgiveness. That is the great lie of sin. So now, after this blame game that Adam and Eve have done, God is going to speak again. And it is here that we're going to see the agonizing grace of the continuation of God's plan in verses 14 through 24. And as we walk through this, God is going to deal with each one of them in turn, starting with the serpent and then Adam and then, or I'm sorry, and then Eve and then Adam. And as we do this, I want you to watch for two things. One, I want you to see appropriate consequences or justice. This is not God getting angry and saying, I'm so mad you are going to do this and just flying off the handle, losing control. This is appropriate response to what they have done. The punishment fits the crime. The other thing that you're going to see, I hope, that I think is amazing, is that even in this difficult moment, there are so many instances of God saying, my plan will continue. Hard, agonizing, but the grace of his plan will continue. So let's look at the justice for the serpent. Look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Look at the justice. First of all, there's a declaration of curse. A curse is an opposite of blessing. In scripture, it's the direct opposite of blessing. A blessing is an intentional working for and willing goodwill to the person. A curse is an intentional working for and willing bad things. Something has changed now and a curse has entered the world and it is falling upon this serpent. And we looked last week at the idea that throughout scripture, this serpent is clearly Satan showing up in the garden, tempting Adam and Eve to fall into this sin. So we're not going to look at that today. So we have this curse, but look at the justice of it. The curse upon the serpent is that he will eat dust, crawl on his belly. Now, people have looked at this and said, does this mean that snakes before this had feet? I don't know. I don't think that's really the point. But what is emphasized is this concept of eating dust. And all the way, if you go to the end of the chapter, uh, the end of verse 19 at least, talking to Adam, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. The serpent sought to put himself over Adam and Eve. He played the role of God as well to get Adam and Eve to do something that God said not to, to get Adam and Eve to question something. In fact, the serpent flat out denied something God had said, which was putting himself in the place of God. And now God says, I made everything. And in the Hebrew mindset, it's almost like dust is the fundamental building block of the world. We think of atoms and what do we have now? Quarks, I guess. There's probably even something smaller. They thought of dust. God shaped the dust and there was Adam. Adam dies and he will return to the dust. And the curse upon the serpent is you're going to live in the dust. You sought to take the place of God, but you will not only live in the dirt and the death of this world, you will eat it every day of your life. It is an extreme curse of putting the serpent in his place. But there's also a continuation of the plan. Do you remember what God had said to Adam and Eve? What would happen when they eat of the tree? Look back at chapter 2, verse 16. This is important as we walk through this because we need to put ourselves in the place of Adam and Eve to hear what they would have heard. Chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So there you are, Adam and Eve, you're standing before God, and he's pronouncing judgment. And what are you expecting? Death. And you're kind of listening in on this conversation between God and the serpent. And you hear, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And your ears perk up. Wait a minute, what? There's going to be more? There's life? Life is going to continue? This idea of enmity is hatred. It's willful hatred towards someone. And God says in this serpent that sought to put himself over Adam and Eve and kind of bring Adam and Eve to his side, God says, no, 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 there's going to be hatred between the two of you. Now, some people say this is where we get our fear of snakes. And some people say, wait a minute, not everybody's afraid of snakes. I think that might be reading it a little too literally. 
But at the same time, you have to understand this is going to the ancient Near Eastern culture. And the Israelites are wandering through the desert at the time they receive this. Do you really think any of them at that moment are going, oh, a cute, a snake, that's so cute. No, as you wander through the desert, if you see a snake, you're feeling enmity. Okay? There's hatred there. Get away. You grab the kids and you move away. These are death-dealing snakes that they're dealing with. There's no little cute garter snake that you pick up and pet. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe that's just me. But there's this hatred. But I think it's much more than that. It's not just about a snake. And it's not just about people. This is about the spiritual war that goes on all the time between Satan and God's people. And throughout Scripture, Satan seeks to undermine and undo the plan and the will of God. And as we trust God, and as we follow God, Satan is put in his place. There's this ongoing battle. But even in this judgment on the serpent, the created order is restored. The serpent is put back below all of creation. And of course, there is this pointing to Jesus Christ at the end of verse 15. The NIV renders this a little poorly, I'm afraid, because it really should be, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The word there is exactly the same. I don't know why the NIV chose to change it. But the idea is of a serpent that is biting at somebody's heel. And yes, a poisonous serpent, it could be deadly, it could be really bad. But it's also possibly survivable. The striking at a serpent's head is how you kill a serpent. It was an absolute statement of there would be one who would have victory. And the pronouns here, and the, the, the plural and singular pronouns are interesting. Because we have this plural offspring, these many children, and then he switches immediately to the singular. He will strike your head. Out of all these children that Adam and Eve will have, all the generations, he, one, will come that will strike the head of the serpent. This is called the proto-evangelion, the prototype of the gospel in Scripture. It is just the inklings, just the beginnings of pointing to Jesus Christ, who would one day defeat Satan and crush him forever. Grace is given by God that Satan would be crushed. And so we come to verse 16 in the judgment on Eve. To the woman he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Eve's place in creation that would have been joy, would have been absolute joy and happiness and blessing, would have been wonderful every day waking up and going, I get to do this. I get to be who God has made me to be, and I have everything to do that. Now is agony and hardship. That's the effect of sin in the world. And frankly, that's the justice of God. We wanted to know what it would be like to be able to make the decisions. We wanted to know what it would be like to be in charge. Sin and the consequences is God coming to us and saying, okay, but you need to know it all. Because now you will bear the consequences of it. But again, there's this grace. Life will continue. Eve will have children. And there's this plan of God that continues. Not only Eve having children leading up to Jesus Christ, but the created order restored. In sin, Eve made a choice. She usurped or took over her husband's authority. 
And here God says, you're going to be restored to that right relationship with your husband, but there's going to be tension and agony in it. And we live in a world where the relationship between the genders is torn and there's hardship because of sin. And so we come to Adam, verses 17 through 19. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree of which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. You see the justice in this? Again, Adam was created to work the garden to care for creation, to tend creation like a farmer or a gardener tending to a garden. But now that role will continue, but it will be filled with hardship and difficulty. That's the curse. That which was a blessing now becomes agony. But there is the continuation of God's plan. Adam will live. He will live a life and he will continue on in the role that God had made him for. He will still care for creation. Adam sought to be like God, and so usurped, took over God's authority. God is saying, I'm not going to put you to death now, but you are going to be reminded every day of your life you are a created being. We live in a world where, especially I think as we get older, you hear it all the time. People start talking about their aches and their pains and how hard it is to get old. We feel our bodies dying a little bit more every single day. It's difficult. Why? Because we are created mortal beings. And when we sought to take the place of God, God said, you are going to be reminded every day, you are not me. You are mortal. And there's difficulty. Sin is very serious and has consequences. But God's grace is amazing. And we come to verse 20. And I jokingly spoke to my wife this week, and I I just said, you know, verse 20 seems so out of place. Here's this utter judgment on sin and these horrible, awful conditions. And in the middle of it, it's almost like Adam is sitting here listening to all this and says, I've got it now. I just thought of a name for my wife. And I know how my kids do this to me where I'm trying to be very serious with them and tell them something. And they're like, hey, I just saw a squirrel. And you're going, you're not paying attention. And I kind of thought that's what was going on here. But think about it for a second. Adam has just heard over and over again, judgment, yes. Difficulty, absolutely. But life is going to continue. And he makes, I believe in verse 20, a declaration of faith, a trust in the continuation of God's plan. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the rest of Scripture lays out that living, what the world is going to look like, what the the offspring of Adam and Eve, you and I are going to grow up in and live in. And it is difficulty, it is hard, it is agony. But life does continue. There is grace, but it is hard often. Adam will still care for creation. God's purposes will still continue, though they will be difficult. And so we come to God's gracious provision. Look at verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. If you remember back in verse 7 of chapter 3, 
Right after Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked. And in the Old Testament culture, naked and shame always go together. So there is this concept. They felt ashamed. They realized they were literally covered with shame. And they wanted to fix that. So they start grabbing leaves to cover themselves up. I think it was a very feeble attempt. I wonder what they looked like when God came to them. I'm guessing it wasn't working too well. And so God in a sense, clears that away and says, no, no, your efforts aren't going to do it. You can't cover your own shame. And God takes an animal and kills it and skins it and covers Adam and Eve with something much better than what they could do. Now, again, this points ahead to many, many themes in Scripture, one of which is that for our sin to be covered, life must be taken. The penalty of sin is death. Something must pay that penalty. And as the Israelites are hearing the book of Genesis for the first time, they are also hearing the institution of the tabernacle and the temple and the animal sacrifices, and they would have seen that right here. Oh, it began right away. Something had to die in my place. And of course, I hope you, on this side of the cross, when we hear this, we need to see Jesus. Someone had to die in our place. He bore our sin. And then we see a gracious restriction in verses 22 through 24. And the Lord God said, the man now, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. We read this, and again, we tend to see, look how awful God is. We were in the garden He kicked us out. Again, the deception of sin. Look at God's reasoning. Adam and Eve are now in sin. They are corrupted. They are defiled. They are filled with shame. Their life is going to be agony. And God says, in a sense, I have a choice. I can leave them in that state, in this garden. They can eat from the tree and live forever or I can send them out of the garden and deal with them there. God doesn't want us to stay in the agony of sin forever and ever and ever. This was an act of grace. Pushing Adam and Eve out of the garden was mercy. Because it's on this side of the garden that yes, we are in our sin, yes, we are corrupted, but there's an opportunity for salvation. God has provided a way back. After sin, even Eden had become a living hell. It was grace that sent them out. To live in sin in the perfect presence of a holy God is absolute agony. We tend to think if we could be just a little bit better, things between us and God would be that much better. But Genesis chapter 3 wipes that away. Our problem is not just that we slipped a little bit or that we're fallen a little bit. It's that the relationship between us and God has been absolutely damaged and broken. The way back into the garden is shut. There is nothing we can do. There is no good thing we can do to just step a little bit closer to God. We're on this side of the garden gate. When we looked at creation, I asked you, if you ever felt 
in those moments of doing something, this is what I was meant to do. If you've ever had just that inkling, that glimpse of, I feel like I'm doing what I was made to do. I, this I find joy in. And we have those fleeting moments. And I hope when I said that, a few of you were able to think of, yes, I've had those moments. But I'm guessing maybe some of you didn't. And even those that have, it's probably few and far between. Now imagine this. Imagine the things that you work on being more difficult than it seems they should. Imagine imagine the things that you do not turning out the way you think you should. Imagine, in general, things being frustrating and stressful. I'm guessing if I ask for a show of hands, how many of you feel like that on an ongoing basis? Most of us would put our hands up. Why? Because of Genesis chapter 3. Because we live on this side of the garden. Because we live and are born into this world infected by sin. We are already infected from the moment we entered this world. This world is broken. And we can get mad at God in these moments and say, why is, why does this happen? Why do children die? And they're good questions. But in those moments, there's something within us that wants to well up and get angry. And I would say it's a good response. We should be angry. We should be mad. But in those moments, we get mad at God. We are the ones that chose to abandon the garden. We are the ones that chose to to rebel against God. And now we are living in a world shaped by our consequences. And God is the one who saves. We can't come back to God on our own. But you know something? God can come to us. John 3:19 through 20 says this, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And then Luke 19:10 says this, for the son of man, that's Jesus Christ, came to seek and to save the lost. We live on this side of the garden gate in a world of sin and agony and death and disease and destruction. Jesus Christ left the garden of heaven. He chose to come here. We express our freedom by taking God's place and trying to find joy, and then we play the victim when we are faced with consequences. Christ expressed his freedom by choosing to go to the cross and take our consequences. That's the God that we have. That's what the Creator has done for us. He has crossed the garden gate, provided a way back through His Son, Jesus Christ, who says, come on, follow me. Trust me. Live my way. Trust in my way of life and not what this world has to offer. The way is blocked back to God. The truth is obscured and death reigns. But Jesus came saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. What a beautiful Savior we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, this is difficult. But I hope it helps people to make sense of the world that we live in. I hope as we look at our own life, we can start to say, I get it. I see the sin and the consequences. And I hope and pray that unlike Adam and Eve, we would not shift the blame. 
But God, that we would freely admit to you, I am a sinner. Because you are holding out and offering salvation to each and every one of us. And there is so much blessing in your way of salvation. There is joy. There is hope. But not in the way Mr. Creflo Dollar has to offer it. It is a hope that goes way beyond this world. Because God, we have become too busy trying to reorganize the world on this side of the garden when your plan is to call us back. And so I pray that we would busy ourselves with pointing people to Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, the gate of life back to you. May that be our focus in our own lives and in our testimony and our witness to those around us. In your name we pray, amen.